So just as a quick recap of where we're up to in this series, this theme of deepening insight, looking into the three universal characteristics of all experience, namely impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. And so with this latest series of talks, we're focusing on not-self, which for most people is the most complicated to get their heads around. And we're using the not-self as a lens to explore where and how we get caught in clinging to experience, identifying with it, taking it personally. And to the extent that we do that, make it solid and real and who I am, to that extent, we tend to suffer. So the point of this is to see more clearly how does that clinging happen and how do we help it to release so that we can move out of suffering. So last time I was here, I was we were exploring anatta or not-self in the context of the five clinging aggregates which, as you may remember, the Buddha named in the first noble truth as being associated with suffering. So, actually, it's not the five aggregates themselves that are the issue. It's the clinging to them or the resisting them or the taking them personally that creates the suffering. So, just as a reminder, these five are, one, material form, including the body, which is what we were exploring last time. Second one is feeling tone or Vedana. Third is perception or Sanya. Fourth is volitional mental formations or Sankara. And the fifth is consciousness or Vijnana. So I gave an overview of all of those last time I was here. But just as a reminder, the Buddha chose those five particular aspects of experience because they're the ones that we tend to identify with and use to construct a fixed, solid sense of self at the center of the universe, which is a delusion. So last time I was here, we were exploring the first of these, the tendency to create an identity in relation to our bodies. And we can see that very clearly, I think, the suffering that comes when our bodies don't look the way that we want our bodies to look or they don't perform the way that we want our bodies to perform or our bodies get sick or injured and of course are aging and eventually will die. All of those are areas that we tend to resist. So this evening I'd like to move on to the second clinging aggregate which is Vedana usually translated as feelings or feeling tones. And I think most of you are already familiar with that term from the four foundations of mindfulness. Because as I think you know, it's the second of the four foundations of mindfulness. So if your head is spinning right now, (laughs) just to say that the Buddha's teachings are like a matrix and there are all these different lists and lists within lists and things that connect and interconnect You don't need to try and get a clear mental map of it all tonight. Just take in what you can. I'll try to make it practical and trust that what is useful for you will stay. So feeling tone. 
the bare recognition of any experience that we have at any of the sense doors as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's what we were doing just a few moments ago in the guided meditation, focusing just on the body. But that same process is also happening with sights, with sounds, with smells, with tastes, physical sensations, and with the mind. So everything we experience is automatically categorized by the nervous system as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So my understanding is that this categorizing function is actually part of our more primitive brain, the reptilian brain, the earliest part of our evolution. And it came from that time when we needed to recognize very quickly whether something out there was a threat, was going to eat us, or whether we could eat it, or whether we could mate with it. So it's a pretty basic processing system. So it's in there, but that basic fight-flight response has stayed with us to some extent. But we've just learned to overlay it with an apparently more sophisticated reason and rationale for doing what we do. So I've shared how in my own experience, when I first learned about Vedana, I found it quite humbling. Because up until that point, I had this belief that I was a pretty sophisticated human being and that I was making informed and intelligent choices about my complex life. But when I started to really pay attention to Vedana, I realized that actually I'm not that much different from an amoeba. So just like an amoeba blobs towards what it wants, blobs away from what it doesn't like, or if nothing much is going on, just blobs, I'm doing pretty much the same. And you might think that's an exaggeration. (laughs) But I invite you to really look at why you do anything that you do. And I don't think it's just me. (laughs) I think you'll see that everything you do is either moving towards what's wanted, pulling away from what's not wanted, or if it's neutral, looking for something more stimulating to engage with. So the main difference between me and an amoeba is that I have the delusion that I'm a sophisticated entity. So just to say there's nothing wrong or bad about experiencing Vedana. It's just a function of having a human nervous system. We can't stop it from happening. But it has a hugely powerful effect on how we live our lives because it's the building block of all of our reactivity when there's no mindfulness. So when Vedana are clung to or resisted, that creates suffering. When they're released from, that's the gateway to freedom. So I I would even go so far as to say that every single one of our problems, every one of the world's problems, we could trace back to the inability to relate skillfully to some kind of feeling tone. If you think about any conflict that you had, every war that's ever started, at some point was someone reacting to something unpleasant 
or not getting something that was wanted. So paying attention to Vedana has an ethical dimension to it. And I think it's probably why the Buddha put so much emphasis on this apparently simple aspect of being human. Because when there is no mindfulness, these three feeling tones strengthen what are known as the three core afflictive energies of greed, of hatred, of delusion. So this is happening moment to moment, but it's also being strengthened over the course of our lives. So even right now, you're actually sculpting your mind. You are strengthening certain pathways and diminishing other pathways by how you're reacting moment to moment to these stimuli. So pretty obviously, I think, if something registers as pleasant, we want it. We want it to continue. We try to hold on to it. We want to enhance it. We don't want it to go away. And that habitual reaction strengthens the core energy of greed, the habit mind of greed. When something is unpleasant, it strengthens not wanting, resisting, avoiding. And when that becomes habitual, it strengthens the habit mind of hatred or aversion. Neutral feeling tones tend to strengthen not knowing, ignoring, spacing out, and that feeds the habit mind of delusion or ignorance. And the more habitually we react to these, the more they become the default setting of our minds. So in modern neuroscience, neurons that fire together wire together. So when we identify with pleasant and unpleasant Vedana, we tend to let those basic reactions affect our thoughts, our emotions, our moods. We compound them into reactivity. And then we often take that reactivity personally as being me, mine, who I am. So as an example of that from my own life a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, when I was living in Australia and I needed to go for a pretty long drive across state, the state to another town. And I didn't own a car, so a friend of mine lent me his car. It was the middle of summer, so I set off early in the morning before it got too hot. And I was quite enjoying this novel experience for me of driving in a car through the countryside. The car was new and comfortable. I was in a pretty good mood. And then after some period of time, I got stuck behind a long line of trucks. And the truck in front of me had a bumper sticker that immediately triggered a reaction, irritation, judgmental thoughts. And those thoughts took me by surprise because a few minutes earlier, I'd been enjoying the day. And then suddenly I was really grumpy. And then I noticed that the car was quite hot. So this car had air conditioning, so I turned the air conditioning on. And then it was a lovely day, and I was enjoying the drive, and everything was pleasant. And I thought, hmm, I don't need the air conditioning anymore. My friend had told me, don't use it unless you absolutely have to, because it affects the mileage, blah, blah, blah. So I turned the air conditioning off. And after a few minutes, I started thinking, my friend is so precious about his car. He is really uptight about all these details. What's wrong with me? I'm so grumpy. It's hot in here. I turned on the air conditioning. 
It was really nice of my friend to lend me his car. It's such a beautiful day. And this went on for cycle after cycle after cycle before I finally realized I was getting hot. And the unpleasant feeling tone was conditioning irritation in the mind. And then I was taking it personally. I'm a grumpy person. Why am I so irritable? Then I'd unconsciously turn on the air conditioning. I'd cool down. Everything was pleasant. I'd be a lovely person again. This went through wave after wave after wave. It was a long drive before I finally saw off feeling tone. And then I just noticed the rising of the unpleasant. Push the button, the diminishing of the unpleasant, the rising of the pleasant. And there wasn't the same reactivity and identification with all of it. So maybe you see things similar playing out in your own life. But the Buddha was really clear that the first step is to train in recognizing Vedana so we can bring wisdom to it to release, restrain the reactivity and orient instead to ease, acceptance, peace and freedom. Which is, I think you all know, a lot easier said than done. So just to explore some of the common ways that we tend to get caught in these. Firstly, unpleasant, obviously, tends to condition aversion. So even right now, as you're sitting here, you might again notice if there is any unpleasant sensation in the body. Perhaps there's drowsiness or heaviness or beginnings of a headache perhaps some indigestion from eating dinner too quickly, or a grumbling in the mind, not wanting to hear all about Vedana, just to notice. And most of the time it's easier, as I said earlier, to notice unpleasant because of our brain's hardwiring to our negativity bias, that famous aphorism that our minds are like Velcro for what's unpleasant and Teflon for what's pleasant so painful experiences tend to stick in the mind more so remembering that clinging also includes the opposite movement of resisting if we don't see the vedana for what it is we very quickly go into irritation frustration rage blame resistance judgment self-judgment so on and then the unpleasant Feeling tone compounds into mental reactivity, proliferation, and so on. So the antidote is to try and stay with the immediacy of the Vedana, like we were doing in the guided meditation, and just know it for what it is. So we can start that training with the more simple aspects of experience, what we were doing earlier, and not add that sense of my knee pain or my headache or my problem, my issue. And this is very different from our usual habit. Usually when there's no mindfulness, if something is unpleasant, we immediately go after something pleasant to try and get rid of the unpleasant. So in daily life, there's probably an endless list of strategies we have Maybe a glass of wine or a tub of ice cream or a handful of painkillers or a calling a friend or taking a long nap or going for a walk or hugging our partner or going shopping or 
playing online games or binge watching TV. There's all kinds of strategies. And these aren't wrong or bad, but if we're using them just unconsciously to escape the unpleasantness, we're reinforcing a kind of dependence on those things rather than learning how to be with the difficulty in a way that leads to more ease and more freedom. So the danger of just reflexively going after pleasant every time there's anything unpleasant is that it keeps us stuck in our comfort zones and we don't develop the capacity to be with life's inevitable challenges. So when the big ones come, old age, illness, injury, death, we don't have the resources to meet them and we suffer even more. So most people without training tend to go after pleasant. Um, we don't recognize that even pleasant experiences have their drawbacks. So it's helpful to be able to register pleasant feeling tone too. So even right now, you might again just take a moment. What's pleasant in your experience right now? See what you find. And then notice if the mind subtly or not so subtly goes, oh yeah, oh that's good. Ah, let me just stay there. Finally she stopped going on about unpleasant. <laughs> so we can notice that tendency to move into greed, holding on, trying to enhance it. And just a big caveat here that this is not about avoiding pleasant feeling tone. It's the clinging to or the attachment to it that's the issue. So sometimes people misunderstand the Buddha's teachings as being we should never enjoy anything or we should try and avoid pleasant experiences because we'll get attached to them. But again, it's the relationship to them that we want to pay attention to. So as a simple example, in the tea break just before, I just happened to notice that someone had put out these pretty fancy chocolate biscuits. And so I went, I had one, I ate it relatively mindfully with awareness, notice the pleasant taste and the texture and the flavor and so on. And then when it was gone, it was gone. Okay. Other times in my life, I might have noticed that biscuit, noticed there was quite a few people in front of me in the line, started counting how many were in the box and how many people were ahead of me and how many I might take without looking too greedy. And then I'm caught and there's a difference. So in one, I simply enjoy the experience for what it is. In the other, there's a clinging and then there's an identification with it. So again, we want to notice, even though we have this inherent negativity bias, for some people, because of conditioning, there can actually be a fear of pleasant feeling tone. And I've noticed this, it was true in my own practice, but sometimes some of the students that I work with too, that there can be a kind of suspicion of pleasant experiences. They're unreal and lightweight Whereas unpleasant experiences are re real and true and just how life is. So when I noticed this in myself, I realized I had quite a lot of resistance 
to the idea that joy might actually be a necessary part of the practice. So you might notice in your own conditioning, is there any resistance or clinging or avoiding pleasant experience out of a belief that spiritual practice is supposed to be hard and challenging and deep. And if it's not that, then I'm not doing it right. So then the invitation is to open up to the full spectrum of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And as somebody mentioned before, I think Liz mentioned, neutral is the hardest of the three to work with. Because technically it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And because it's neither of those, we're much more hardwired to notice each end and not so much the mid-range where it's more neutral. And neutral experiences aren't threatening, nor do they give us any pleasure. So most of the time they're just below the radar. So again, just to practice with this, you might tune in now. See if you can find any neutral aspects of your experience. And you might notice how quickly the mind moves away in search of something more interesting, more stimulating. So most of the time when we connect with Vedana, If we don't recognize it clearly, we get stuck in not knowing, we space out, we go looking for something more exciting to pay attention to. Or sometimes, almost perversely, we would even rather have an unpleasant experience than nothing at all. I was just remembering, I think earlier this year, I shared that experiment they did where they put people in a room with nothing to do. And there was a box in the room that would give them an electric shock. Do you remember that? (laughs) It was pretty sad. So I'll try to remember it because I haven't brought it with me. But basically, they invited all these volunteers and they were told that they had to spend time in a room by themselves without their devices or any other kind of distraction. And that in the room was this box which would give them an electric shock. And they, before they went into the room, they were tested to, they tried out this machine to see what the electric shock was like. And every single person said, that is really unpleasant. Do not do that to me again. Anyway, you can probably guess where this is going. I think men on average took nine minutes before, maybe it was even less, but something like nine minutes and 13 minutes before they shocked themselves. And almost nobody was able to stay in the room by themselves for that time. That's my, that's my memory. Don't quote me on that. So neutral can be extremely challenging to be with. I think women stayed for longer from memory. But again, but they, they ended up doing it. And I think men did it more than once. Anyway, I'll have to find the actual... (laughs) We'll have to Google it later and find out. So the idea is just that neutral 
isn't necessarily as neutral as it might sound. But with training, we can start to open up our capacity to be with more of the full spectrum of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral without landing or trying to close down into just one narrow slice of that spectrum. And we can start to acquire the taste for more subtle and refined states of mind and to appreciate the relief that comes from not being caught in that push and pull of wanting and not wanting. So while it is true that the Buddha warned us not to get attached to sense pleasures, what sometimes isn't highlighted as much is the importance of cultivating skillful mental pleasure. So developing mind states of calm, of concentration, of ease, happiness, joy, peace, These are allowables. These are actually where the practice is going. And when we are able to access these profoundly nourishing mental qualities, ordinary sense-based pleasures like chocolate biscuits and ice cream and so on don't have quite as much appeal. So we're much less likely to be pulled into unskillful behavior and we're much more likely to live our lives in ways that benefit others as well as ourselves. So just to highlight the importance of mental pleasure and joy on this path, I'd like to close with a quote from Bhikkhu Analio. And he just says, After his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. (coughs) This statement shows that unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was exactly the eradication of mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. The ingenuity of the Buddha's approach was not only his ability to discriminate between different forms of happiness and pleasure, working out which are to be pursued and which to be avoided, but also his skillful harnessing of non-sensual pleasure for progress along the path. So according to numerous descriptions in the text, because of the presence of mental delight, joy arises, happiness arises, and this leads in a causal sequence to deep concentration and realization. And this causal sequence is likened to the natural course of rain falling on a hilltop gradually filling the streams and the rivers and finally flowing down to the sea. So once non-sensual joy and happiness have arisen, their presence leads naturally to concentration and realization. And conversely, without gladdening the mind, realization will not be possible. So all of this is an invitation for all of us to experience ever-deepening non-sensual joy and happiness as the path to freedom. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.